We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 9, and the verses we'll be reading are verses 35 to 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness, every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Well, please keep your Bibles open at Matthew chapter 9. You didn't possibly think we could get through this conference without looking at these verses, did you? Before we do that, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you've been doing over this weekend, representing to us the good news of Jesus and representing to us your gospel priorities for your world and challenging us with our place in your plans. As we come to this uh, last uh, text that we're going to look at, we pray that you'd please help us to uh, have the energy to keep paying attention and to keep being engaged. Please, uh, Father, just give us that uh, extra perseverance. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we'd keep learning, we'd keep being challenged, we'd keep growing. Uh, And we pray, Father, that you'd speak to us now uh, through your words and uh, as we consider the situation around us, We pray, Father, you do your work in us and through us for your glory. Amen. Well, well, yes, this is really got to be kind of the CV go-to text, doesn't it? Uh, It's one that you've heard quoted from the front a couple of times, and I thought, let's spend a bit of time now as we finish up together looking at these great words of Jesus. But what I thought would be really good for us to do would be actually just to pull out a tiny bit more, not just look at verses 37 and 38, as we often do, but also think about verses 35 and 36, just a couple more verses, but they really do give us a bit more context and fill out the fullness of what Jesus is saying to us here. So in front of you, you've got that now, Matthew 9, 35 through to 38. And it's this little snapshot of Jesus in his ministry. Uh, And as you look at verse 35, you you see a couple of things come out of it straight away. Uh, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and illness. Where did Jesus operate? Where did Jesus conduct his ministry while he was here among us 2,000 years ago? Well, the language Matthew uses here in chapter 9 is reminiscent of what we already know from Matthew 28. You know, we've heard Ben speak to us so helpfully about the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And here we have Jesus going through all the towns and villages. It's that kind of picture of a whole limitless sphere of ministry. All the towns and all the villages. But as we look at it here in Matthew 9, it's not nations, it's towns and villages. It has a kind of local feel to it as well, doesn't it? 
It's a here and around us kind of feel, not just an out there kind of feel. Yes, all the nations, but also all the towns and villages around us. It's that, uh, it reminds me of that catchphrase that lots of greenies use now. Uh, think global, act local. It's exactly what Jesus did. Think global. Yes, have the whole world in your perspective as you think about what Jesus is doing and uh, what his purposes are, but act local in all the towns and villages, all the postcodes, all the suburbs around. This is how Jesus operated. And what did he do? Well, it's not very surprising what Jesus did here. He taught and he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. What we've been talking about all weekend, right from the beginning, praying, your kingdom come. May people recognize Jesus as the king. Jesus sees the prophecies of scriptures fulfilled in himself. And he's going and teaching them and proclaiming that he is the king of the kingdom. And people need to follow him as king. He's also healing, you'll notice, at the end of that verse. Healing every disease and illness. And when we see Jesus healing in the Gospels, you, know, you might ask, Oh, wow, we just can't do the same ministry as Jesus because we can't heal. I don't think the point here is this is something you need to copy, but this is a sign of what it looks like when the king of the kingdom is present. You know, in the kingdom we've spoken about, when it's fully consummated and, and comes in all its fullness with Jesus' return, there'll be no disease, no illness, no sickness, no sadness, no suffering, no crying. And Jesus is just giving a taste of that as he goes around. Uh, sure, he's doing a great ministry for the people who are sick and, and diseased there and then. But he's also showing this is what the kingdom's like. You're healed, you're better, you're full, you're whole. This is what you can anticipate when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Verse 36 is powerful too because here we see something of Jesus' heart in his ministry and his work. Uh, I think sometimes we can get in an unhelpful mindset of saying, I need to obey Jesus because uh, I have to do it and it's rules and I need to keep the rules. Now, there's something very good about that. You actually do need to obey Jesus. Uh, it's wrong to reject his commandments. And Jesus obeys his heavenly Father as well, doesn't he? He's doing what the Father's will is. But he also is acting from his heart and out of compassion for the people around him. So not doesn't say when Jesus saw the crowds, he knew he had a duty to fulfill among them. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And when I read that, you see a similar thing when Jesus is feeding the 5,000, the 4,000, that he has compassion among them, uh, compassion for them. Uh, it's just a good heart check for us, isn't it? Do we do what we do because we feel like we have to? Is it just pure kind of dry, cold duty? Or do we have the heart of Jesus? Are we compassionate for people? Do we care about people made in the image of the Father? People who are in many ways exactly like us. Jesus has compassion, and he particularly has compassion in verse, verse 36, because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They're people who need to be cared and tended and looked after, and it's not happening. And Jesus feels for them that they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're not being cared for the way that they ought to be. And those two verses are the ones that stand before the ones we know uh, 
more readily. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. But the reason I wanted to pull back to these two verses was uh, just to show you something of Jesus' global but local work, something of his heart, but also the fact that in these couple of verses here in Matthew 9, we actually have two agricultural images, not just one. We have two images, not just one. And what these two images together do is they build up for us a compound picture of the problem that Jesus sees in the world. A compound picture. So in verse 36, again, going back to that, we have the image of sheep and shepherds. This agricultural image of sheep and shepherds. And if you know your Bible, you know your Old Testament and your New, you'll know this is the language that is used for God's people and those who care for them. People who belong to God and those who care for them. So in 1 Samuel 16, when we meet David, who's going to become the great king of Israel, who's David? He's a shepherd boy. The one who God wants to be king is a shepherd. You read Ezekiel 34, and there's uh, this great uh, passage here where God sees his sheep not being cared for by those who are appointed as shepherds, and he talks about he himself coming to be the shepherd of the sheep. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, knowing his sheep by name. In John 21, Jesus commissions Peter to feed his sheep. <coughs> tend his lambs uh, same thing Peter reflects back to us in 1 Peter 5 that he calls others to tend the flock of God and in Luke 15 you might know the parable well of the lost sheep the one who belonged and was lost and the shepherd goes looking this language of sheep and shepherds is used throughout the Bible for those who are God's people and those who care for them and Jesus has compassion because here are God's people like sheep without a shepherd. Then verse 37 gives us a different agricultural image, the image of harvest and harvesters. And this uh, is in addition to the sheep and shepherds. There's, there's another picture Jesus wants to paint here. Uh, and he paints it for us by using the language of harvest and harvesters, which is really those who aren't God's people yet who are out there in the fields and who need to be brought in. Those in the harvest, those who are part of the great crop that hasn't yet been harvested, who need to be brought in, which gives rise to Jesus' prayer that there will be more laborers for the harvest. The lost and the evangelists. The harvest and the harvesters. And when you put these together, you see what Jesus is presenting to us here is a compound problem. The problem is there are too few pastors for the flock as it stands. Uh, the, the flock, God's people, those uh, who belong to him, do not have enough shepherds. But then add to that the fact that many more people need to be gathered in and you see the magnitude of the issue that Jesus is bringing before us. The flock has not enough shepherds, and we need to keep bringing more people into this flock that doesn't even have enough shepherds. It's kind of, wow, it's, it's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? You'd kind of think, if the flock doesn't have enough shepherds, let's kind of just keep the flock small for now, because maybe we've got more chance of managing that. Jesus says, no, it doesn't work like that. The, there's got to be a greater harvest 
even despite this current lack of shepherds. And what does it do? It drives us to our knees. Jesus says, pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. There's a big task before us. There's a big need. A need for shepherds, for the sheep. A need for harvesters, for the harvest. And what are you going to do when you're faced with such a big task? You're going to get out there and start working your guts out immediately. The first thing you're going to do is drop to your knees and pray to the sovereign God who rules over it all. And you're going to pray that he would provide what the church needs. It's quite interesting, I think, just to notice here that Jesus uh, says that we should ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Notice that the prayer is for the workers, not for the harvest. He prays, we have a prayer that there would be workers rather than that there would be a harvest. There is a harvest. There are people out there ready to hear the gospel and be brought to salvation and into the kingdom. What's needed is the workers. And it's interesting, as you read through the rest of the New Testament, uh, and I'll just flick to a couple of passages quickly, a few of the prayers we get are actually for those who are the labourers rather than those who they're labouring to. So at the end of Ephesians, Ephesians 6 verses 19 to 20, this is Paul's prayer. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I should declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul's saying, pray for me as a harvester. You know, it's, it's interesting. I would kind of think the prayer would be, Pray for the lost that they might find salvation. And no doubt that's a prayer that's often on the lips of many Christians and rightly so. But Paul's focus here is, no, pray for me as a harvester that I have the words and I do the work that I'm called to do. You see the same thing in Colossians. Uh, Colossians chapter 4 verses 2 to 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul prays for himself and his co-workers, as well as uh, call, Paul asks for prayer for himself and his co-workers, as well as asking the Colossians to pray uh, for themselves or to be, uh, uh, that they would also be conscious, rather, of the opportunities they have for witness and evangelism. So I really just wanted to flag that as an interesting thing and wonder if you in your prayers pray for the harvesters as well as the harvest. Great to have a list of people who you're praying for that might come to know Jesus as Lord and King. Do you also pray for the people who will witness to them? And do you pray for yourself that you would be a good witness to them? Jesus calls us to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. And Paul, we see, uh, models for us prayer for those labouring in the harvest field as well as for the harvest itself. So two agricultural images, sheep and shepherds, God's people and those who care for them, lots of people, not enough care. Harvest and harvesters, lots of harvest, not enough workers. And prayer needed as a result.
Now, when we look at these verses, it's pretty easy, I reckon, to uh, go from them and see that they pretty neatly map onto what we see in the world around us still today. Uh, There are well-known problems in the world today, and they're expressed very clearly by these verses. We still have today a shortage of Christian pastors. And by pastors, I don't just mean senior pastors who are the preachers in churches. I don't mean that sort of subcategory of pastors. I mean all pastors, people who are serving the Lord by giving their lives to making disciples, to teaching, to caring for and loving those who are members of God's family. We have a terrible shortage of pastors. We have ministries that need more people to be involved. Uh, I find it so sad if I'm ever invited to go to a church and speak where they have no regular pastor. Uh, it's very sad. You'll do something like this and you'll, you'll go and you'll uh, teach the Bible and people will lap that up and be so thankful to hear the word of God and they'll come and connect. And you know, it so often happens if you're ever in this situation, they, they try and poach you. Say, oh, well, so I wonder if you'd like to come back next week. And I mean, if you're looking for a job and I think, well, bless them that they want that, but it's the same situation. Here's sheep without a shepherd. And, and they're still out there now. There are churches like this. There are churches without pastors. And we should have compassion like Jesus did. This is not how it's meant to be. Sheep need a shepherd. It's stunned me. I've been in Adelaide less than a year. It's stunned me that there have been a number of ministry positions, like paid ministry positions, that have remained unfilled. You know, there's not many sectors of the uh, sectors of employment where you can say, "Oh, there's more jobs than applicants." But actually, there are a lot of jobs, and there are some jobs right now in this city that are vacant and looking for people. Good ministry jobs. We're still in very much the same situation where we have sheep without shepherds. Ministries without ministers. And similarly, we're in a situation where the harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Adelaide has this nice label, the City of Churches. You've heard that, no doubt. Uh, People from around Australia know that label. This is the City of Churches. Uh, But you know why we're happy to say, oh yes, we live in the City of Churches? You know what we would never say? We live in the City of Believers. We're talking about buildings, aren't we, and and infrastructure, bricks and mortar. We're not talking about a city of people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the city of churches, but not the city of believers. And in fact, we have a massive generation now of unbelievers. Perhaps more unbelievers in this city now than there ever have been since the gospel first came here. We have a generation of people who believe in false gods. We have more people worshipping false gods in this city probably than there ever have been before. We have more people in this city now probably than ever since the gospel got here, proportionally at least, with pretty much no knowledge of Jesus whatsoever. No comprehension of the gospel. 
no understanding of what the Bible teaches. We have hundreds and thousands of lost people out there now in this city, in this state. Hundreds of thousands of lost people and nowhere near enough harvesters working in those harvest fields. Nowhere near enough. And the sad thing is, though they're lost, they're not unfindable. Jesus is not saying uh, the harvest could be out there. If we had a few harvesters, maybe they'd go and find something possibly. The harvest is plentiful. The lost are findable. But the labourers are few. And that's very much the situation of our city and of our state today. It's a well-known problem. I'm not telling you anything new here. You know this and you know it well. One of the things that saddens me though is that sometimes in the face of this problem of not enough shepherds, not enough harvesters, sometimes even churches and church leaders propose the wrong solutions. They propose the wrong solutions and it's, it's kind of sad. So you'll hear solutions like this. We need new ways of doing church. New ways of doing church that aren't so formal or upfront, that aren't so dependent on leadership. We need new ways of doing church that aren't so much about hearing someone stand up and teach the Bible at great length, but more about us sort of coming together and being in close fellowship with one another. Uh, what we need is new ways of church that take these three small churches in the same area that there's no way we can staff and amalgamate them into one kind of cluster uh, with one pastor who can kind of jump between them. The reality, of course, is uh, while we say that what a great show of unity that a number of churches could come together and do that, the reality, of course, is that's because we don't have the people to staff each of them individually it's a solution to a problem as much as a kind of virtue to be praised that we have here. Now, please don't get me wrong in this. Please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying for a minute that we don't need to think about doing church differently. In fact, I'm an advocate for doing church differently because I think lots of the ways we do church aren't good and it does need to be rethought. And please don't get me wrong in saying that I think everything should be upfront and formal by people who are kind of in official roles and there shouldn't be any one another ministry among people who are in the pews. I don't think that at all. I don't think that at all. We do need to have great fellowship and great ministry among each other, serving one another, building up each other. Uh, we do need to rethink the ways that we do church and to be inventive and creative. But all those things are secondary. All those things, rethinking how we do church, uh, reimagining our structures, all those things, they're secondary to the real solution to the problem we have. The real solution is not just to cut the cloth differently, to, to, to reassemble uh, the pieces of the puzzle in a different configuration. Jesus' solution is incredibly simple and straightforward. Jesus' solution to this problem of not enough shepherds, not enough harvesters, is we need more. We need more. We don't just need to do church different, though that may be a good thing. We don't just need to change the manner in which we serve one another, though that may also be a good thing. The primary solution is we need more. Jesus says it's a numbers game. It's a numbers game. 
the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. We need more laborers. It's a numbers game. As simple as that. The first thing we need to do is not reconfigure, reinvent, redesign, though all of that may have its place. The first thing we need to do is see more workers, boots on the ground, people engaged in Christian service, serving the church, serving the lost. The last thing we really want to see is churches amalgamating and coming together uh, to uh, sort of have a viable ministry. What we want to see is churches multiplying and expanding. Uh, Not three churches becoming one, but one church becoming three. Which of course means we'll need more people doing ministry, more pastors, more preachers, more people in all different roles in church work if we're going to see that happen. The solution to the problem in the church today, the primary solution that Jesus gives us is numbers. We need more people involved in the work of the gospel. Now, Jesus does, of course, call us to pray for this, first and foremost. But he doesn't just call his disciples to pray for this. While he, has, uh, while he is saying to his disciples, you need to ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field, he doesn't say to his disciples, just pray and don't do anything, does he? In fact, his disciples became the apostles, and the apostles laboured long and hard, gave their lives to the work of establishing, building, growing the church, of evangelism, of ministry, of pastoring. Yes, pray... But as the Apostle James teaches us, don't just pray. Pray and labour in line with the prayers that you are praying. In fact, it may well be, and this is often, I think, how God works. It could be the answer to your own prayers in God's strange way of working. CV conference this weekend is not a random idea. It's not a random idea. There are many great Christian conferences you could have. We could have conferences on relationships, on spirituality, on any other number of things. And they're all great. And praise God that we do have those kinds of things. But CV sits in a slightly different place. CV is really a conference that is laying out before you clearly and plainly Jesus primary strategy for his primary objective for this age the primary objective is to see the kingdom grow is to see people come to repentance and people matured in the faith and the primary strategy is more workers for the harvest cv is a conference that's talking about jesus primary strategy for his primary goal for the age and the whole purpose of what we're doing this weekend just to state the obvious, is to ask ourselves the questions. Could we be shepherds? Could we be harvesters? Could we be the ones that Jesus is going to use to accomplish his purpose in this age? And I want to say that is such an important question for us here now to be asking. Because... If it's not us, who is it? 
If it's not us, who is it? If the next generation of Adelaide's and South Australia's pastors and evangelists, ministers, gospel workers are not in this room right now, where are they? Where are they? Who are they? Where is the next pastor of your church going to come from? Who are they going to be? Who is the person who is going to start a new congregation in a part of this state where a congregation of people who follow Jesus doesn't yet exist? Who's going to do that if not someone in this room right now? Who is going to be leading new outreach to people groups among whom there is currently no outreach if not one of us, many of us in this room right now? Who's going to do it? Perhaps you know. Perhaps you actually know where there's a hidden stash of gospel workers. I don't know where they are, but maybe you kind of know, no, no, there's this kind of special place where there's this kind of room full of gospel workers, and when we need them, we'll just go and get one out. And There's no such stash. There's no other place. They don't come from this kind of secret little closet waiting to be deployed. They're us. If they're not us, they may well not exist. Does this make this a closet? This maybe is the closet, but it's not secret. It's not this kind of unknown, mysterious, faceless group. It's us. I think it would be really great, wouldn't it, to see in the years ahead a city like Adelaide, a state like South Australia, not needing to keep thinking about where are we going to get our next pastors, evangelists, gospel workers from. We need to look somewhere else. We need to keep importing. You know, we, we need to hope that someone else will be training our next generation of leaders. Someone else will be teaching our next generation of pastors and then sending them to us. Really, by all rights, a place like this, if anything, should be the opposite. We should be sending. We should be sending. We have enough people, enough Christians, enough believers. We have enough training facilities and institutions that we should be training up lots of people, filling up all the ministry opportunities here and having more to send. It's kind of, I think, a little sad if we're heavily dependent on imports given that God has given us all the resources, all the knowledge, all the wisdom, all the experience we need right here. Well, if that's not kind of enough of a challenge, let's ratchet it up a notch. We kind of know today's problem, don't we? But what about tomorrow's problem, the one we don't think about as much? What about the future? What about the next generation? What about what things are going to look like in this city, in this state, in 20 years' time? If we need more leaders and gospel workers and pastors and evangelists and all kinds of ministers right now, what are we going to need in the next 10, 20, 30 years? And... A large part of the answer to that question will depend on what we do now. You see, if we don't do what we're called to do now, it's just going to make it even harder for future generations to do it. The world right now around us is moving on. The world is moving on, moving forward, in many ways moving further away from Jesus, and they're not waiting for the church to catch up. They're not saying, we'll just halt our progress, we'll just halt our movement away from the gospel while you guys sort out your acts so you can come and minister to us. Let us know when you're ready and then we'll get on. It's not happening. They're moving ahead. And 
the longer we're passive and not acting, the further ahead the world is going to get. If we don't act now, it's going to be much harder for the next generation. There's a real question for us, isn't there, about our legacy. As a generation of women and men called by Jesus, deployed by Jesus, what will our legacy be to our children and our grandchildren, our spiritual children, our spiritual grandchildren? What will our legacy be to this city and this state? Will our legacy be even more and even harder work against even greater odds? Because that will be our legacy if we're passive. That will be our legacy if we don't act. We will leave a much harder, larger harvest field with fewer workers for the next generation. Let me lay it out for you in terms of three challenges that I think we have. The first challenge is just the baseline replacement challenge. Okay, The first challenge we have is the baseline replacement challenge. And this challenge addresses the fact that our churches and our ministries have an ageing leadership. We have an ageing leadership. Uh, it's been greatly encouraging for me at Bible College SA to have had a couple of days where we've brought together a bunch of pastors from South Australia to talk about ministry and uh, the work of ministry and seeing how we can be resourced and equipped to do that better. It's been a great encouragement. It's been a little bit discouraging to see how many of those pastors have grey hair because lots of them do. It's encouraging that they've been lifelong servants of the gospel. Uh, it's discouraging that the lifelong servants of the gospel uh, are now ageing and there's not more people with kind of nice brown hair, black hair, red hair replacing them. Because they know, these faithful grey hairs who I speak to, that they ain't going to be doing ministry in 20 years. They know they'll be gone. And they know at the moment that they are a significant proportion of those who are ministering. We need lots more people now of our generation, the next generation down, to be moving into all kinds of works of ministry just to replace those faithful saints who are going to be retiring, who are going to be dying and going to glory in the decades ahead. The first challenge in front of us is the baseline replacement challenge for every one of them that finishes up in their work of ministry we need one of us to replace them and that's just the baseline but let's move on to the second challenge and the second challenge is actually keeping pace with population growth keeping pace with population growth you see we don't just need one more red hair, brown hair, blonde hair, black hair for every grey hair, because that would assume that the population is static and we could maintain the status quo just through replacement. But we can't maintain the status quo just through replacement because the population is growing. The population of South Australia at the moment is growing by about 16,500 people every year. 16,500 people every year. How much Ministry, how many gospel workers do you need to disciple and make disciples of 16,500 people? Lots. You need lots of gospel workers to make disciples and bring those disciples to maturity uh, out of 16,500 people. That's just the annual increase. That's just the annual increase. 
16,500 more people a year who need gospel ministers, disciple makers among them. The state government uh, estimates that by 2034, that's uh, 20 years' time, by 2034, the state's population will have tipped 2.06 million. Uh, currently, it's 1.73 million. That represents uh, roughly 20% growth in the next 20 years. 20% growth in this city and state in the next 20 years. What does that mean? That means that for every pastor, minister, gospel worker, evangelist, Bible teacher, mentor who leaves Christian ministry in the next 20 years, we not only need to replace them, uh, but for every five we replace, we need a sixth just to keep track with population growth. Just to keep track with population growth, we need not only replacement, but replacement plus 20%. That's the second challenge, is keeping up with population growth. Replacement plus 20%. But you see, all of this is really just to stay where we are, to maintain the status quo, just to tread water. We need to have replacement plus 20%. The third challenge is the big one, and that's actually getting ahead of population growth, getting ahead of the curve, seeing ministry and, and the church and the agencies of the church and all the ministries you know growing at a rate greater than the population is growing. Growing more quickly than the population is growing. That is, that's the key metric. That's the, the kind of golden kind of ratio we're looking for. We're looking for a greater increase in gospel ministry and gospel ministers doing gospel ministry than in population growth. So we need more than replacement plus 20% if we are going to see the gospel have an increasing impact on our city and state. More than replacement plus 20% if we want to see the gospel having an increasing impact on our state and our city. That, I think, is what we should be aiming for. More than replacement, more than 20% on top of replacement so that we can see real gospel growth across the city and across the state. Now that kind of sounds overwhelming, but let me encourage you with this. I think in Adelaide of all places, in South Australia of all places in Australia, this is doable more than anywhere else. I think the nature of this state, this city, and what there is here at the moment means that we are actually better positioned under God in his sovereignty to see this achieved than anywhere else in the country. I think when you look to the big cities like Sydney and Melbourne, the population is so massive. And what's going on in the church there is in so many parts and there are so many complexities to it. Uh, we pray that our brothers and sisters there are fruitful, but it's kind of like a monstrous task that's even hard to begin wrapping your head around. When you look to some of the smaller cities like Hobart or Darwin... The thing there is, I'm not sure they have the same level of gospel infrastructure that we have here to be able to bring everything together towards a unified project at seeing citywide transformation. 
You see, here in Adelaide, there's a number of things. I've I'm, I'm kind of got fresh eyes here, and there's things I see here that I've not seen in other places. The city is a size that, though big, you can actually think is conceivably tackleable. There's a structural readiness in the churches, in the church institutions, in the ministries that are on the ground, uh, church planning networks, uh, university ministries, uh, school ministries, things like that. There's a readiness for, uh, if you like the way that um, the language that Ben Farlett uses actually is uh, that all the power poles are up and the cables are in. All we need to do is flick the electricity on. All the structures are really in place. We have colleges. We have traineeships. We have church planning networks. We have new ministry initiatives being championed. We also have an incredible unity in the gospel that you don't find in other places. Uh, ben was saying to me before he left that even CV, this room, this snapshot, is something that you don't get in other places. This bringing together of lots of different people from different churches, different denominations, different backgrounds with the same goal is a unique thing. Similarly, uh, I went to the South Australian prayer breakfast uh, earlier in the year. There were 1,600 people in the room. None of the other states touch that. There's a, there's a readiness in the structures and the unity and the place of the church and what God is doing and, and compared to the size of this city and how more than anywhere in the country, I think it's doable here. It's doable here. Under God, in his sovereignty, as far as we can see with human eyes, Adelaide and South Australia are ripe. So we need the next generation on board for Project Adelaide, Project South Australia. We need the next generation ready to take up the call, take up the charge and become the shepherds for the sheep, become the workers for the harvest field. Take on the challenge and be the generational change. Be the generational change. Who's going to be the seed of the generational change? Well, just to repeat myself, it's us in this room right here, right now. Ben spoke to us a few times about some myths that he wanted to blow away. And I, I want to just finish off with a similar thing. Um, not so much myths, but uh, what I want to put before you is four reasons not to be the change. Uh, and my hope is that we can sweep these aside. Four reasons not to be the change for this generation in this city and this state at this time. The first reason not to be the change is this. You just don't believe it. You just simply don't believe it. You don't think the situation's that dire. You don't think that it's really that significant whether or not a new generation gets on board with gospel work. You don't think that it'll make much difference one way or the other. You don't think that there's a desperate need for people to hear the saving message of Jesus and to come to him as their king and their saviour and give their lives to him and inherit eternal life and be freed from the slavery to sin that leads to destruction. You just kind of think, yeah, I'm not sure I buy it. I hope that everything you have heard this weekend, and I hope what you know anyway from your churches 
and from your own Bible study tells you it is true. Uh, It needs to be believed. The kingdom is coming. The purpose of the age is to see more knees bow, more tongues confess, more people grow in their holiness. Uh, My hope is this reason that you don't really believe it is not even anywhere near uh, your list of reasons for thinking that it's not that, that you don't want to be the change. My hope is we're all thoroughly convinced. I want to say to you, though, it's good to be honest about this. Don't just kind of think, oh, well, I guess I have to be because everyone else is. Uh, that won't fly long term. If you're wrestling with this question of how urgent and how real the need is, then wrestle with it. Get stuck into your Bible. Read the Gospels. Read what Jesus says. Look at the urgency of the Apostle Paul. Read the book of Revelation. Talk to your pastor about it. Meet with someone and ask, is this really what's going on in the world? Wrestle with it. Don't just assent thoughtlessly to it. Don't reject it, but wrestle with it. Be on your knees and pray to God that he would give you his mind for what's going on at this place in this time. So the first reason not to be the change is because you don't believe it. And I hope we can tackle that, and we have tackled that, and I hope that's not even an issue for you, but if it is, I hope you address it. The second reason is, it's not me. It needs to be someone, but it's not me. Now again, I want to ask you the question, if not you, who? And I want to ask that question tangibly. Write a list of names of who it will be. Names of real people, not the imaginary person who will turn up and serve in our ministry on one day. Write a list of names of who are going to be the five people to replace the five pastors who are going to retire in the next five years. Who's going to be the sixth to add on? Who's going to be the seventh to get ahead of population growth? Who are they? Write their names down. If it's not you, then come up with a list of names. Because we don't live in a world of hypotheticals and abstracts and imaginary people. We live in the real world Right here, right now, the world that you and me inhabit and in which we are agents of God for his purposes. It is not by accident, it is not by accident that we are God's people in this place at this time. It's it's not a mistake that we happen to be living in this place at this time with these needs. And I think... Neither is it a mistake that someone has tapped you on the shoulder and invited you along to CV, encourage you to be here. I want to say again, it may not be you. It may not be you. It may be for a variety of reasons actually, and good reasons, that uh, it can't be you at this time, or it oughtn't be you for a variety of reasons. But again, uh, repeating what our brother Ben said the other day, I suspect the number of people whom it really shouldn't be is probably smaller than the number of people who think it shouldn't be them. So ask the question seriously, if not me, who? And why not me? Four reasons not to be the change. You don't believe it because it's not me. The third reason, and I want to get kind of down to real practicalities with these last two, The third reason not to be the change is because of a house. Kind of sounds weird, doesn't it? Because of a house. Many years ago, uh, a great uh, 
man who was pastoring me, a Christian guy, said he thinks one of the key reasons that gospel ministry in the West is limping along is home ownership. And I thought, that's, kind of, that's weird, that's not very spiritual. Why don't you say something about, you know, something about principalities and powers? And so, no, he goes, no, home ownership. But I think on reflection he's right. Owning a home is a huge investment and a huge burden for many of us to carry. If you borrow $500,000, you're going to be paying back a million bucks over the next 20 or 30 years, and that is a ball and chain. You're going to have to work five days a week. You're going to have to do overtime. You're going to have to give most of your money to your mortgage. You're not going to be able to take a year off, two years off to do a traineeship, because then you're not going to have the money to sink into your real estate. The amount of time and money that we give up to our real estate is phenomenally huge. I'm 40 years old. I have a 12-year-old daughter and a young son. I've never owned property. I've never owned a house. The most valuable asset I have is 2007 Honda Jazz, which probably ain't that valuable. Now, I'm not saying here that no one can ever own a house and that's a sin and God will judge you for being a homeowner. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. And in fact, uh, I'll be quite open with you. Our family is hoping that in the near future we might be able to buy a house. But what I'm saying is do this wisely and with priorities and conscious of the impact it will have on your capacity and freedom to serve. Okay, make sure when you buy a house, uh, you're thinking about its impact on your ministry and your capacity to serve. Because if you buy the house first, it'll all be flipped on its head. And you'll say, my impact and my ministry, my capacity to serve and give and do things is a function of my home ownership. So make sure it's the right way around. Again, I'm not saying no one can ever own a house. I'm not saying that we should be uh, homeless vagrants uh, or people who end up having to uh, you know, all bunk in each other's back rooms. Not that that's such a bad thing. But don't get yourself in a situation where you are crippled in your capacity to serve because you're carrying a debt that was worth 25 years' salary. Think about it. Think about what your real needs are. Think about when you need to do this. Think about how you balance that need against the freedoms and opportunities of gospel service and the ways to do that. Think about if you might be able to buy a smaller house in a less prestigious suburb that might let you drop down from four days a week, uh, three, five days a week work to four days a week work so you can maybe take on a traineeship at the same time or start going to Bible college and really beefing up your scriptural knowledge as you make a transition from one way of living to a different one think about the priority of housing and, and I'll just touch there on what will be the fourth of these reasons not to be the change uh, you, you don't believe it, it's not you, your house and then the career change is the big one the career change is the big one and I've already spoken to you about uh, the fork in the road uh, where, that I faced and having to change career paths in order to be involved in Christian ministry. Uh, ben, who was up the front, also spoke about that, having been, uh, what do you call himself, a waste management engineer? I think he was a garbo, but I think <laughs> this was his way of putting it, right? Which, don't get me wrong, I'm actually 
with him and, and my wife can attest that I praise the Garbo because imagine if they didn't come. It's a great job. But a career change uh, might be needed. Uh, but it's not just him and it's not just me. This is actually, I think, in many cases, the standard pattern. I think most, most people who are serving in gospel ministry in a vocational full-time capacity uh, are people who have had some kind of former career behind them. So when I think about it, I can think of people who've been doctors, who've left that behind and become gospel workers. I can think of people who've been actuaries. I don't really know what they do, but I can think of them. <laughs> people who've been in IT. People who've been teachers. People who've been bankers. People who've been plasterers. People who've been working in insurance companies. But it was a hard choice for them. <laughs> people who have been tax officers who have left those jobs, those careers, with all the security and all the prospects they uh, provide and, and all their kind of length of service behind them and said, I'm going to change direction and I'm going to head into gospel ministry. It is a big thing to do. It's no small thing to park your career and, and all that time you spent getting qualified and getting trained and moving up and understanding the organisation and getting into certain projects and finding your niche having a steady income that will probably be more than you'll ever earn if you were to go into uh, ministry work. But it's not uncommon at all. And it's one of the sacrifices and it's one of the very common changes that people make when they're thinking about whether or not they will go into gospel ministry. So I want to say to you, if you're kind of, that's nagging you and you're nervous about, oh, you know, the whole career thing, that's a fine thing to bring out and put on the table and talk to someone about because it's really common. And it's a really good thing to work through because it's one of the real issues. But I reckon if you can get past those four, I don't believe it, it's not me, uh, I'm tied to this mega mansion worth too much money and uh, I'm locked in this career. If you can get past those four things, I think you're kind of quickly running out of reasons not to be the change. And praise God for that. Praise God for that. Well, finally then, what about, what about pathways? What do we do from here? We've had this whole weekend, and the thing about a weekend like this is it's just not quite 24-7, but it's uh, intense, hot housing, focusing on this idea, uh, going through it again and again, having it presented to you from lots of different angles in lots of different forums. It's so much in your mind, but you're about to get in the car and drive away and leave this weekend behind. Uh, what are you going to do from here? What's the next step? What's the pathway? Well, the two things that I think have been put up in front of you uh, over the weekend are two things I want to uh, represent. And I think uh, two clear next steps are either a ministry traineeship, where you go and learn how to be a disciple maker under a more experienced disciple maker, or Bible college, where you go and soak yourself in the scriptures uh, in learning original languages, in learning all about the different parts of the Old and the New Testament and what they say and how they fit together, when you learn theology and when you get stuck into thinking about the theological underpinnings for ministry and how Bible and theology drive ministry. I want to say again, make sure as you're making those decisions, you work hard and think about which traineeship you might do uh, which is the one that's really going to serve your needs as you want to get good practical experience and good feedback and good reflection 
uh, on doing on-the-ground ministry and think carefully about which Bible college you might like to go to that will really teach you the Bible rigorously and strongly and deeply and that will be theologically robust and that has a real ministry focus. Those, I think, are two of the next steps. Another step we haven't spoken about, but is one that I really want to just throw up for you there as well, is start talking to potential ministry employers. Kind of sounds weird, but if you think, just say for some crazy reason, I have no idea why anyone would do this, but just say you want to be a minister in the Anglican Church, right? I only say this because that's me, right? Then go and talk to the Anglican Church and say, I'd like to do this. Can we start this conversation about me coming to work for you? Maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you say, I want to go and work for a student ministry group like AFES. Go and talk to the state director, to Jeff Lynn, uh, or talk to your campus director, the campus director of the local university and say, what would it look like for me to do this? And maybe you say, I think I'd like to work in prison chaplaincy. Uh, I'd like to do that. It's a fantastically vital, important ministry. Go and talk to the people doing prison ministry and saying, I'd really like to get involved in prison ministry. Um, how can I do that in this state? What are the channels? Uh, what do I need to do in order to be involved? Well, maybe you want to work in, in rural South Australia. Maybe you need to actually take a few trips out to the country and meet some of the pastors and ministers and the uh, ministries going on out there and say, I'd like to be part of this one day. Uh, how could I be involved in this uh, mission to Aboriginal peoples or rural peoples or whoever it is? You get the picture... Whatever it is, start talking to people and building relationships with those among whom you might like to serve in the future and getting to know them and getting to know what they think would be helpful for you as you head in that direction. That would be a great third step. Traineeship, college, and start talking to the people who you think one day you might want to work alongside and in partnership with. A couple of important things to say with regards to the pathway is Make sure your pathway is paved from start to finish. Don't have gaps in it. Don't say, you know, there's a bit of the pathway here and there's a bit more pathway up there, but there's nothing next. Have a next step. Don't say later. I think one of the great things that hinders us in our ministry is we say, yeah, I should do that one day. Yeah, yeah, one day I'll get there. At some point I'll come around to that. No, don't do that. Think about what the next step is and make that next step a step you take soon. Uh, you should have all done a five-year plan and in that five-year plan, I think the first thing was what's going to happen by next month? Now, whether or not you're kind of a stickler for you know, sticking to a tight program like that is not really the point, but the point is keep moving from here. Don't leave the conference today and then put it on the back burner till next year's CV. Keep moving Every month, every week, looking to what the next step is. So plan that next step and uh, keep connected with people as well who can help you continue to think through the pathway that you're going down. We want the kingdom of God to come. We pray it every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. We want people to recognize Jesus as King and through recognizing, recognizing him as king, have their sins forgiven and be adopted into the family of the Father by the Spirit, ready to share in the eternal blessings. We want the kingdom to come now as we anticipate it coming in its fullness 
when Jesus returns. Jesus hasn't come back yet because he's being patient, because he's waiting. He's waiting for more of the lost to turn in repentance to him. And as he's waiting for those to turn in repentance, he's deployed his people to pass on the message. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. There are sheep without shepherds and a harvest without workers in this period that Jesus is waiting. And we're to be involved in actively working towards his end as we anticipate his return. Our generation's work lies before us. And so what we need to do now is to commit to being the change under God the Father by the power of the Spirit and for the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come. May it come in the hearts and lives of many, many, many women and men across this state and in this city before it comes in its glorious fullness, that great day when we'll see you face to face, when we'll sit down at the great banquet, when we'll enjoy perfect fellowship in a healed and restored and whole and glorious new heavens and new earth. We thank you so much for all we've been learning and thinking about and processing this weekend. And we pray that you would please help each one of us to be on board with the purpose of the age. To, be, to being uh, disciple makers who call people to faith and who help them uh, as shepherds help sheep to stay healthy and strong and well and safe in the long wait that it may be before you return. And uh, we do pray so much that uh, you would please raise up uh, not just many among us, but even many beyond us to be workers in this harvest field. Lord, we pray we'd seize the moment and not wait a year or 10 years or 20 years and realize that we've now just got an even bigger task before us. But what may we seize the moment and in your grace and mercy, may we please, please uh, actually even get ahead of the curve and see this city and this state transformed more and more into a place that's not just a city of churches, but really is a city of believers, a state of believers, a country of believers, a world of people who bow the, name, uh, bow the knee to the name of the Lord Jesus as we all will one day. And we pray in anticipation of that great day in the name of our great King. Amen.